0: PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So, here we are, recording again. It's um, Thursday evening. We just got back from Cork.
1: Sometime last summer, Ian gave us a memory card with some old files on it. It was an audio diary he'd kept for a couple of years, and he thought we might find some of it interesting.
0: I do believe that these cases are winnable. Whether I deserve any damages, I don't know.
1: He's talking here about a decision he's come to, to sue eight newspapers taking on the media for defamation of character.
0: It doesn't matter about the money anyway, that's not why I'm doing it.
1: Seven years had passed since Sophie's murder. The guards had failed to build a case against Ian that convinced the Director of Public Prosecutions, the DPP, to bring charges. Though the case was open, there hadn't been a significant development in years. Still, Ian felt wronged. That he'd never been given a chance to address the rumours that had spread about
0: him. The reason why I'm doing it is because I want to... Put the uh, death to a dirty, rotten, stinking lie, which was perpetuated and spread like a virus, accepted uh, gladly by those who, um, in the guards who wanted to find a, a victim. And here we go, here we go, here we go.
2: In the absence of a murder trial, this was Ian's battleground. If no one was going to openly try to prove that he was a murderer, and Ian's plan was to prove that he wasn't. But Ian wasn't the only one seeing this as an opportunity. This was a civil trial. Officially, it had nothing to do with the guards, but they drove a key witness up to the courthouse to make sure she testified. And though none of the guards testified, Ian's lawyer, Jim Duggan, says they were a constant presence in the courtroom.
3: It seemed to me that they had more interest in the newspapers' actions than the newspapers themselves. They saw this as an opportunity, perhaps, to do against Bailey what the DPP wasn't doing, that is, to try to expose him. I certainly wasn't prepared for that.
2: The Sophie Toscan de Plantier case had been stuck. When Ian took on the papers, the guards saw a way to pry everything loose.
0: A lot will occur now in a very short space of time. The decisions I make and the way I handle the next week, few weeks, will define me um, and my
2: life and whatever I am forever. This is Westcourt, an Audible original series. I'm Sam Bungie.
1: I'm Jennifer Ford and this is episode 10, Shanghai. Jim Duggan, Ian's lawyer, says taking on the newspapers was an easy decision. As far as he could see it, the papers had shredded the reputations of both Ian and Jules.
3: They accused her, for instance, I remember the Sunday Independent accused her of having a child, an illegitimate child, with a guy called Indian Joe, who lived in a T.P. on Long Island. I mean, this was absolute rubbish.
1: Jules sued over this one article and the newspaper settled. Ian was more ambitious. He sued eight newspapers from both Ireland and the UK for a possible total of
2: 260,000 euros. Jim hoped that Ian's suit would go the same way as Jules's. He said cases like these are often settled on the courthouse steps, the day the trial is due to start. But things didn't go according to plan. He waited, but no one approached him. The newspapers had come loaded for bear, with a defence team instructed by four separate firms of solicitors. And it was clear that morning just how scrutinised the lawsuit would be. The street outside Cork Circuit Court was closed off to traffic. the last occasion, I was made to
0: feel very much the accused person. And, of course, I am the accuser.
2: A reporter on the day said that the press outnumbered the legal teams and the onlookers put together.
4: Ian Bailey emphatically denies involvement in Sophie Tuscant Duplantier's death. He has said this trial is about convincing ordinary people he had nothing to do with it. Unbelievable. It was like living in a
5: bubble.
2: Ian dressed for the cameras. He showed up for court in a light gray suit, blue shirt, and maroon tie, carrying an old leather satchel with his notes and clippings for the trial.
0: The discovery of Saddam the same was the only thing that got me off the front pages of the papers in about a week. He enjoys being the
3: center of attention, you said.
4: Ian, one comment.
2: Ian hadn't made things easy for Jim Duggan and the rest of his team. He'd been in the papers the last couple of years for stuff that wasn't anything to do with the murder, like when he was caught drunk driving, or when he assaulted Jules in 2001 and was dramatically arrested at the airport on his way to London. And though Jim felt they had a case against the papers, it didn't help that his client had repeatedly agreed to be interviewed, including for one of the articles they were suing over.
3: He's extraordinary. extraordinary. He'll do nothing, you tell him. I mean, uh, we would tell him to keep his head down, keep his mouth shut. He'd do anything but.
2: Jim Duggan laid out Ian's claims against the newspapers, that they'd printed several false claims about Ian's history of violence against women, including his former wife, and that he'd been seen washing blood from his clothes near the crime scene. And he claimed generally that Ian had been tried and convicted in the press the newspapers were just defending their right to describe Ian as a suspect and that they were correct to describe Ian as a violent man.
1: Ian and his team didn't know that lawyers for the newspapers had been working with a retired guard-turned-private detective, a personal friend of Detective Dermot Dwyer, to serve summonses around West Cork. And they had learned enough about the guard's case to assemble a small army of witnesses from West Cork ready to speak out about Ian. 26 turned up to testify.
3: When you go to litigation, you don't, know what, you don't know what's going to come out, you know? And particularly with defamation. Everything is on the line. Your past can be used to, to attack you.
1: The fact that there was never enough evidence to charge Ian for murder should have been an asset. But in the context of the libel trial, it became Ian's greatest weakness. The newspaper's defence team had managed to get hold of a letter from the DPP. Though they regarded the case as still open, there were no plans for a prosecution in the case. So materials that ordinarily would have been deemed inadmissible were allowed on the grounds that there was no future trial to prejudice. The defence laid out the entire case against Ian. They questioned him about his movements that weekend. They went through the discrepancies in his timeline on the day the body was discovered, his alibi... Witnesses testified to Ian's alleged confessions, the bonfire over Christmas, his strange behaviour. came into the kitchen.
4: He was upset. He put his arms around Richard Shelley and said, I did it. I went too far.
1: At trial, Ian insisted he had never met Sophie. He had just seen her once, from a distance, through a window, when he was doing some gardening for Sophie's neighbour Alfie Lyons. But Alfie contradicted him testifying that he was 90% sure that on that day he had introduced Ian to Sophie. Things were not going to plan. Ian remembers standing in the shower one morning before court, praying.
0: Jules was having a very hard time and had a bit of a breakdown, and I was taking a shower and I was thinking about the day ahead when I knew that a number of people were going to go into that box, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and then lie through their teeth. And I was trying to get the sort of strength to forgive them the trespasses that I knew they were going to commit against me.
1: In the second week of the trial, Marie Farrell delivered what must have been the most gripping testimony of the entire hearing, certainly the most damning for Ian. Marie, the soft-spoken mother of five, dressed all in black, told the court she hadn't wanted to come. Another woman, Marie Farrell, claims she suffered harassment and intimidation from Ian Bailey, including cutthroat gestures and his finger pointed to his temple, after she made a statement to guard Thee placing him at Cale Father Bridge near the murder scene on the night in question. Jim Duggan tried to call a stop to it all. He said, This line of questioning of getting motive, opportunity, lack of alibi, seems to be attempting to say yes, he did it. But this wasn't supposed to be a murder trial.
0: We were shanghai basically. I mean, I basically walked into a trap, I think.
1: During Ian's third day on the stand, the defence produced material the guards had found during one of their raids.
0: After the first arrest, I became highly paranoid. And I remember I did take some materials just in case I was going to be raided again. But it wasn't to do with hiding anything that I didn't want anybody to see particularly. Although, I I mean, these were private writings.
2: Private writings, journals, a stack of hardback notebooks, things he'd stashed in the garden shed of a friend of his. I
0: just they had a lot of poetry. I mean, I just used to write things.
2: Reading through some of the entries in Ian's journals, you get why he wanted to keep them private. There were graphic fantasies about orgies. He wrote, I'm totally obsessed with sex. I really enjoy watching hardcore pornographic eroticism. I cannot get the acts out of my mind. And there's a short story about a man contemplating allowing his partner to have sex with another man while he watches. Ian wrote, he wondered if he could handle his lover being taken by another nasty, bearded, bristling animal of a dog man.
0: We were all taken by surprise. They cherry picked bits and pieces, which they—they, um, they, I guess—they thought you know would allow them to paint me in a um, a bad light. Imagine you were in my position, where you know you're in the box, and I put it to you, Sam, that you, you know, you this here, uh, you know, had. Three wanks last night, rather than the usual two. You uh, you know, and and stuff, personal stuff starts to come out. Um, Clearly it's it's not going to be a pleasant experience.
2: Ian wrote about his drinking, and he wrote a lot about violence, specifically his violence against Jules. A lot of damaging evidence emerged during the libel trial, but nothing more explosive than this. There'd always been talk in West Cork about it, but the libel trial was the first time most people were confronted by the full violence of these incidents.
4: Ian Bailey's cross-examination began late this afternoon and almost immediately he was challenged about what's been described as his stormy relationship with his partner Jules Thomas. In his direct evidence, he admitted that he'd fought with Ms Thomas three times in 13 years, and he described how he'd pushed her away during one of those fights. This afternoon, though counsel for the newspapers,
2: Paul Gallagher challenged Ian Bailey if this was the whole truth. In his diaries, Ian described himself as an animal on two feet, writing, there's something badly wrong with me. After one assault, he wrote, I feel a sense of sickness at seeing my account. I actually tried to kill her. If you had known that they were going to use them, would you have proceeded
1: differently?
3: Probably wouldn't have proceeded at all. I probably would have advised Ian Bailey to leave matters lie. Uh, He'll only be doing more harm than good by going ahead with his actions. Whether he would have agreed to that or not, I don't know.
6: Paul Gallagher put it to Ian Bailey repeatedly that he'd written in his diary that he'd actually tried to kill his partner Jules Thomas. Mr Bailey replied, it says so. And he acknowledged that he'd forgotten he'd ever been so frank with himself
2: To a lot of people who followed the trial at the time, Ian didn't appear to be ashamed about a lot of this. It was as if Ian didn't quite grasp the seriousness of the situation. Under cross-examination, Ian said some of these graphic descriptions were best considered in the abstract as poetry. In one passage, Ian had written, I made you feel death was near. When questioned about it, Ian riffed on Jules Thomas's name, saying, I was brought up with another Thomas, the poetry of Dylan Thomas, and death is always near. Then he said, if I hadn't known I had written that and i just heard it from your lips and someone said to me, who do you think might have written that? Was it Dylan Thomas? I wouldn't dispute it. His old would-be tutor, the poet, John Montague, remembered reading that line about Dylan Thomas in the paper. He was struck by Ian's arrogance comparing his writing to that of a great poet and that he didn't seem to be aware of what was happening, how badly he was coming off. He told us Ian seemed to be at the centre of his own play but a lot of the details in his writing actually matched up with reality the one act of whiskey and juice violence coupled and cracked in an act of such awful violence i made you feel that death was near there's a date of 15th of may 1996 um so what did that mean
0: well i mean i i wrote those words i guess um uh That we'd we'd had a, a, I think uh, the 15th of May, I think that was an, I forget the incident, but I, we'd we'd had an, there'd been an incident and I was making a reference to it.
2: This is the violence in the car. I think so. Yes. And so this, this bit of um, writing is in reference to that.
0: I'm, I, do you know, I think it, it must be, it can't be anything else. Um, is that how you would describe what it was? Um, I don't. I can't remember. But I, I wrote those words then. But you can't remember if that if that's how
2: it felt that it was an a act of madness. No, no.
0: I mean I, I I was obviously trying to express something, but it obviously was a private uh, reference that you
2: never thought would be public.
0: Well, I don't think anybody ever thinks. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't actually. You you you'd stop. You'd give up writing, wouldn't you?
2: Ian admitted in court to being violent with Jules three times. The first was in 1993. They were staying at Jules' friend's house in Cork City. They'd gone to bed having both been drinking and got into a row about getting comfortable in the narrow guest bed. At first during his testimony, Ian downplayed the incident, calling it a tussle. He said there had been some degree of violence, but he didn't hit Jules. He just pushed her out of bed. But under cross-examination, he conceded that he may have struck Jules, after she hit him. There was blood on the wall afterwards, but Ian thought it was his own. The barrister called attention to an entry in Ian's journal from the same year. It described a savage beating. "'I attacked and severely beat Jules to such an extent that she sought hospital treatment,' he wrote. "'At present, two nights on, she's badly hurt and walking wounded.' With bruises on her face, lips, and body, how I could have perpetrated such injuries on someone I both love and owe so much to, I cannot properly explain. The second incident was May 1996, the violence in the car that Ian wrote about. This is six months before Sophie's murder, and it's important because it was this incident that put Ian on the radar of local guards. Ian and Jules had been driving home late from a party when they got into a fight. Ian told the court, it was just something that happened in the heat of the moment. She had gone to, a hand came up to scratch me and I was pushing her away. As I've said, there was no thought of premeditation. It was just something that happened.
1: We spoke to Pete Balecki, a neighbour of theirs back then. A few hours after Ian and Jules got home from the party that night, Pete got a knock on his door. It was Jules' eldest daughter, Ginny, with the local doctor.
5: The doctor said, could I take Jules Thomas to the hospital? And I went down to Jules' house, went through the back door. Um, immediately I could hear these sort of animal noises, something in pain, you know. There was a long kitchen and Jules' bedroom was to the left of that. And she was sort of half on and half off the bed, sort of curled in a ball, rocking, making these terrible sounds, and her hands were damaged, sort of bite marks on her. her hair, great clumps of it, missing out of her head. And when she looked up, one of her eyes was just in a terrible state, it was really swollen, and completely closed, and scratches and marks on her face, and... Her lip had been torn. Her bottom lip had been torn away from her mouth. But supposedly, he'd done this damage to her with one hand while he was
0: driving the car. We were in the car, and 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 uh, something just flared up, and she she went to um, uh, I don't know, grab my eyes or put her hand up, and I just w- was forcing her away, really. And it was in such a confined space, it was over in, it was, it was you know, a bit of madness, a moment's madness. It's to my eternal shame. You know, it's, an, it's with me, and it's something I live with, and uh, I don't dwell on it. Um, I, I, I wouldn't, I'm not trying to shift the blame, but it wasn't entirely my, my fault, and we have both been drinking at the time.
1: That eternal shame line is similar to one Ian used at the libel trial. He said, It is to my eternal regret that during our 13 years together we have had three fights, as though contrasting the large number of years he'd been with Jules against the small number of times he'd hospitalised her. The charitable way to look at it is that it's a painful and embarrassing memory, that it's hard to revisit. For someone who feels they've so often been taken out of context or had their meaning misconstrued, it's understandable to want to stick to pre-prepared statements. Still, it makes it difficult to be sympathetic towards Ian. And he still doesn't quite see it the way everyone else sees it.
0: Well, I think it was blown out of pr- proportion. I mean, the, the incidents we, we had were not good, but they also were, if you like, they weren't premeditated and they were they just they were things that happened between us.
1: The barrister picked up on this in court. Ian was asked... If a woman starts shouting at you or resisting you, then you are liable to batter them. Is that correct? No. Then what is the description that you would use to describe yourself in the context of this assault? Totally irresponsible. Is that the best you can do? Is that the most self-critical you can be? Irresponsible. My own self-criticism of myself is my own, and it's deep, and it will be with me forever.
0: I think they were trying to make people scared of me. I think they were... And that was the general drift and gist of the whole proceeding
2: So, but when he says you're a violent man, you that's not how you, do you think you well, are a violent no, man? No, I don't
0: um, And I, I think anybody who knows me knows that I'm not Were you? Well, I think with um, drink with that whiskey taken um, it's undeniable that, but I mean, it wasn't any pre. Premed- can I say premeditated, there was no there were, these were things that just happened between us when we have both been drinking
1: Ian swore off drinking spirits after the 1996 assault. But five years later, in 2001, there was another incident. This time, Ian blamed a combination of wine together with painkillers he was taking for an ankle injury and the pressure of being a murder suspect. Ian's leg was in a cast and he was on crutches. He and Jules were watching TV. Both had been drinking and late in the evening got into a row. Jules got up to leave and Ian struck her across the face. At trial, she initially claimed he'd struck her with his crutch and pointed out that they weren't wooden crutches, they were aluminium, so there was only a bit of bruising. But when cross-examined by the barrister for the newspapers, she admitted that in fact he'd kicked her in the face with his plaster cast. That time, another friend of Jules' stepped in and bought Ian a one-way ticket to London. But the guards arrested him at the airport and brought him back to Cork.
2: All this should have made people more sympathetic to Jules. Instead, people began to feel uncomfortable around her. A lot of people talked to us about Jules as a long-standing member of the community, a respected local artist. The house painter Tom Quinn said that when he first arrived in West Cork back in the 70s, there were just five of them, meaning five blow-ins, and that Jules was one of them. And everyone commented that Jules had had a bad run of luck with men. Jules herself told us that both fathers of her daughters had been abusive. When the second one finally left, about three years before Ian arrived, it sounds like it was a relief to Jules and her daughters. Neighbours of theirs talked about the prairie during this time as a picture postcard country home. Always something just baked in the oven to offer to anyone who called. Jules spending time in the garden or painting in her studio, or with her three daughters. People told us that Jules generally kept to herself, but she had a strong support network. When Ian was violent with her, she had people to call on, to take her to hospital, to book Ian one way tickets out of there, to talk with about sending Ian to Alcoholics Anonymous. Sophie's murder investigation played out during a period of major change for women in Ireland. In 1996, divorce was finally legalised, and the Domestic Violence Act was passed giving the Gardaí power to arrest and prosecute violence within the home. A woman we stayed with in West Cork talked about how attitudes began to change. She said, now that you could walk away from an abusive relationship, why wouldn't you? At trial, the barrister for the newspapers asked Jules whether she thought a man who drunkenly beats his partner is entitled to the respect of his friends and neighbours. Jules told him there was a lot of forgiveness in West Cork, but that wasn't quite true. I got cross. Carrie Williams used to see Ian and Jules socially back then. I was so shocked that she took him back
6: because it was
1: such a U-turn, in my book anyway, that
7: someone's hospitalised you and you're trying to go it alone, you're getting help from everyone around you because you're scared of him, but the next minute he's back in your bed. I, that was just a no-go with me.
2: Len Liptick, another early arrival to West Cork, who'd known Jules for years, felt he'd been a friend to her. He talked her through tough times when she was worried Ian was drinking too much.
8: When people are there to offer a hand and somebody doesn't want to open up and, and, and accept it or, or be there or to be honest with you or something, then how, how long do you hold your hand out for? You know, there is a, there's a limit to everything.
2: Len remembers it was during a radio interview. When he says he heard her lying one morning and
8: the reporter said to her, "Um, has Ian ever been violent towards you? And she said, no. That was the big, big thing for me was the obvious lie and the way she said, no, it wasn't like I was the only one that knew that, you know, everybody saw it. You know, anybody that's seen her out in the street with a black eye. But, you know, it was just so obvious that it was difficult to deal with.
2: However difficult people around Jules were finding it to deal with the fact that she kept taking Ian back, the murder further complicated everything. People began to think, well, if she's excused Ian's violence against her and lied about that so easily, then what else has she excused and lied about? Well,
8: that's it. You know, there was one lie. And plus all the other rumours that were going on, loads and loads of rumours about fires and clothes and things said to different people. And and the evidence, the hearsay evidence, was mounting like a, a pile of rubbish. It was incredible.
1: At trial, there was a long and painful exchange between the barrister for the newspapers and Jules as he went round and round the question of why she had forgiven Ian. Forgiven the unforgivable,
2: the barrister put it, was he still talking about the domestic violence? The implication was that Ian's violence against Jules made him a good suspect in Sophie's murder, that he had a track record of extreme violence, of inflicting the kind of injuries sustained by Sophie, that he was animal-like. It seemed that Sophie had been killed in a frenzied attack by someone who'd lost control. And as Ian's diary revealed... He'd already tried to kill before, with Jules. Jules said that the violence had been blown out of all proportion by the lawyers. It was a domestic issue, she said. She believed Ian when he said he hadn't been violent with his former wife. We put it to Jules. Did she think Ian's assaults on her meant he could be violent towards other women? She said no. There's no shortage of people in West Cork who'll tell you their
1: thinking on Jules that she's managed to fool herself into believing that Ian's innocent, that she's too scared of him to speak out, or that she's the violent one, that she started the fights. And if you talk to enough people, sooner or later someone will lean in with a conspiratorial tone and tell you that Jules did it, that she killed Sophie out of jealousy. People tell you this as though it's some new insightful theory on the murder case. But this kind of thinking is exactly in line with common assumptions about women who choose to stay in abusive relationships. The question, why don't you leave, is so often asked of them. It seems so simple from the outside. We spoke to several experts who explained not just how difficult and often dangerous it can be to leave, but also how many women love their partners and don't want to leave. They just want the abuse to stop. They explained that when women choose to stay... Society so often loses sympathy with them and even ends up blaming them for the violence, concluding that they must invite it or enjoy it on some level. It seems like the murder allowed people to take these tropes up a notch. Jules wasn't just complicit, even instigator of the violence against her. She was capable of extreme violence herself, capable of murder. We even met a guy who told us he buys Jules' paintings because he thinks when it comes out that she's the murderer, they'll be worth more.
7: I don't really care what the community thinks about me. It's only gossip a lot of the time, what they're doing. You know, it's just something for them to talk about.
1: During all our visits to the prairie, it was a rare thing to draw Jules in from her garden or out from her studio and into a conversation about the case. It's hard to know whether that's because she's shy or just battle-weary. Occasionally she'd sit down alongside Ian and go through a particular aspect, but getting time alone with her always seemed optimistic. Jules was lukewarm about the idea, and once when we tried it, taking a tour of the garden, Ian kept wandering over, which kind of defeated the purpose. But late last winter, about two years after we first met, Jules agreed to talk about the libel trial. So while Sam and Ian sat in the kitchen, Jules and I went into her studio. It's a large room at the end of the cottage, with windows all along one side, and Jules's intricate oil paintings of West Cork all along the other. We talked about what the libel trial was like for her, with all the emphasis that was put on Ian's violence.
7: It was like, sort of, um, let's make her out to look a really low piece of life, as if she didn't have any standing in society or anything, you know. It was really, really horrible. vicious.
1: And with um, Ian's diaries, did you know about them? Did that come as a shock to you? Not
7: particularly. Um, I knew he'd written lots of stuff. I mean, he read a lot of it out to me. I, I didn't really... I thought, oh, well, it's all part of the creative process, you know. You've got to see life from all angles, really. And a lot of it was kind of almost fantasy level and they were taking it literally. It was a bit ridiculous, really. You know, I mean, didn't bother me.
1: It didn't bother you to hit mm. that he'd written about you know,
7: beatings or whatever? Well, I mean, if it's his way of getting it out of his system, I suppose I know he was in remorse about it.
1: How did it feel to have details about your private life suddenly made public like that?
7: Well, I didn't feel I had anything to be ashamed of. I mean, you can say violence in the home was... Not common, but it's not unheard of. I mean, there's thousands of cases every year. I think some women have had much worse men who beat them up and lock them up and do all sorts of awful things to them, you know. You know, it wasn't anything premeditated. That doesn't say it's right, but it does happen with alcohol. And we did used to drink a lot, much too much. And I I think just we got argumentative. But... um they were making out that Ian was some kind of demon, but he wasn't at all. I mean, it was it was never anything that went on and on. It was like a sort of flash quick over and oops, shouldn't have done that sort of thing, you know. But I think he did drink too much, yeah. And it would change him suddenly and it was like he would go into a black mood.
1: And what does, a, what does a black mood look like?
7: Um, I, I don't know. He just, he just got withdrawn and went, went and stewed in his own juice somewhere, you know. <laughs> I, I knew it would pass. Good night's sleep usually cures most of those things.
1: But would happen regularly enough or just every once in a while? Um,
7: there'd be cycles, I suppose, every few weeks but he knew he was a pain in the ass then and he'd bugger off and just do his own thing, you know. But he often came out with really good poetry when he was in those moods, you know.
1: I just wondered how domestic violence impacts on the relationships, you know, family relationships and friendships.
7: I don't think it does much good for, save for my daughters. They were pretty horrified and disgusted.
1: So how do you deal with that?
7: I said, we just have to move on and learn learn to improve ourselves.
1: And so because, you know, you'd had difficulties in previous marriages, but they had left and now you were here with your daughters, Ian was quite a big character. Were you mindful of that or wary of that bringing him in? Oh,
7: yeah, I was, yeah. There wasn't a male presence in the house and they got a bit spoilt by having me all the time, I think. But it was a bit, not lonely necessary, but it was definitely lacking something. I felt my existence was. I, it didn't feel natural be without a partner. didn't feel right.
1: I'm just human, really, you know. Did you see yourself as a victim? No. Never. Why do you think that is?
7: Dunno. Just didn't. It's not in my mental makeup to think on those lines, I suppose. Poor little me. Doesn't come into me. I had good relations with neighbours for over 20 years and suddenly they, they weren't talking to me and stuff like that or, you know, sort of turned their back on me in the shop or, you know, whatever. It was just horrible because you knew that the the guards had gone round and told everybody, you know, he did it, he did it, he did it.
1: Do you think that the friends kind of distancing themselves, do you think that Ian's behaviour had anything to do with that?
7: Well, I, I should think it did, but they, they knew that we could forgive and forget, and it was our own problem, and it, and if we we seemed to make it up all right.
1: And have you managed to, or have you tried to... Um rebuild those friendships or do you feel let down by people?
7: No, I think they feel awkward. We say hello and that's about as far as it goes. I mean, when people are in a relationship, is it right or wrong to stay together because you have a few flare-ups and a few violent times together but you actually love each other and, what, what you know, I mean, I I want to go on living with him and that's it, you know. But it's luck, really, at the end of the day, isn't it? That's what Dad always used to say.
1: What, worth relationship? Yeah,
7: it's luck. You just meet the right person or not. And it's not a straightforward happy road all the time life, is it? Not a bed of roses?
2: <laughs> the verdict came down on January 19th, 2004.
0: I said if things were black before, they even blacker now. I said, I gave you, I gave you arrows and spears to, to throw. And what did you do? You cast snowballs into the face of the sun.
2: Instead of vindicating Ian, the judge's ruling seemed to reinforce the guard's case against him. That he probably did burn a few of his possessions in a bonfire around the time of the murder. That Alfie Lyons did introduce Ian to his neighbour, Sophie. And perhaps most devastatingly, The judge validated the linchpin of the guard's case, Marie Farrell. The judge wrote, Mrs. Farrell said she came here reluctantly. On the balance of probability, I accept Mrs. Farrell's evidence that who she saw around Kilfada Bridge was Ian Bailey. An Irish Times reporter wrote that an audible gasp went around the court. Solicitors looked up from their furious note-taking, and Ian Bailey closed his eyes, moved forward, and whispered to himself, The judge made it sound like Ian had invited all the negative attention on himself. It was just vanity. Reading from the judge's statement here, he said, One can only presume that Mr Bailey is a man who likes a certain amount of notoriety, that he likes perhaps to be in the limelight, and he likes a bit of self-publicity. The judge conceded a single point to Ian. No proof had been offered that Ian had been violent to his ex-wife in England. On that score, there would be damages paid to Ian though they wouldn't come close to offsetting the costs he would bear to the papers for the other failed claims. The judge didn't even accept that it was unfair to describe Ian as violent towards women, plural, though he'd only heard evidence of the violence to Jules. That was splitting hairs, the judge seemed to be saying. With Ian, there was no good reputation to defame.
4: How do you feel about your now? Oh, no, just, How do you feel about lads. your lads. Lads, just make him
7: smile, space, lads, please.
2: In the TV footage of Ian leaving the courthouse, he looks dazed, as if he'd collapsed if he wasn't being propped up by the guards hustling him into a waiting taxi. With Ian uncharacteristically silent, the media spoke to the people of West Cork. Pete Balecki told the Irish Times, These people have been vindicated. I told the truth. We all told the truth. We stood up because we weren't telling lies. Another local said it was like winning a football match. The Guardian must have felt vindicated too. A team of detectives immediately began an in-depth examination of all the evidence given at trial, and the court transcripts were sent up to the Director of Public Prosecutions. The trial had revived the case against Ian. That night a crowd of people gathered with torches outside the prairie. Someone wrote murderer in red paint right in front of the house. Under cover of darkness, Ian slipped out of West Cork, leaving Jules under siege, with a noose in the garden and a rat in the postbox.
0: And I decided that my best uh, um, course of action was probably to lie low. Um, So it was a very strange period.
2: There were different reports about where Ian was, hiding out in a caravan, Hold up in a hotel in Cork City or in a South Dublin flat. In fact, he'd flown to London. He called his lawyer from a payphone there. He advised him not to come back. Ian found a place to rent using cash. He left his mobile phone behind in West Cork so the guards couldn't use it to track him.
0: And I decided that it was probably best for me to, to um, be incognito. So I assumed an identity of uh, David Bradley. Uh, just for operational purposes. So there we are. Was that
2: an old friend or uh, something?
0: Well, David Bradley was a character I'd created as a possible fictional character, um, uh, somebody who was a journalist.
2: He imagined David Bradley to be a hard-drinking and trepid reporter with relationship troubles, a little like the guy Ian might have been back in his hometown, long before the arrest put his career ambitions permanently on hold. He even gave his new personality a special flourish.
0: Oh, yes, well, I, I, that's right, I, I, I grew a goatee as well to affect a little bit of a uh, sh- shade of difference.
2: I asked Ian once on the phone, what the hell was he doing? He said it was what anyone would do. I said, I don't think it's what I would have done, and he told me I couldn't possibly know what I would do in his position. No one could put themselves in his shoes. In West Cork, Ian Bailey was finished. He owed the newspapers several hundred thousand pounds and an entire country thought he was guilty of murder. In London, David Bradley was thriving, operating, outsmarting the guards and the press still in his mind a step ahead of the game.
1: West Cork is an Audible original production. Written and produced by Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie. Produced and sound designed by Kristen Muller, Alex Trujano, Robin Wise and Paul Schneider. Our theme music was composed by Shani Avaram. Our recording engineer is Sean Moher. West Cork is edited by Mike Olive. Our fact checker is Christine Baird. And Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom are the executive producers.
5: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
6: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra.